I don't know when I have been in a church that was just so obviously filled with happiness in the Lord. It's just so neat to be here. If Joellen and I lived uh, in the area as we did when we were first married, we'd be here every weekend, every week. One of my treasured friends in the ministry, which I'm not a part of, but a minister that I much appreciate and respect is Elder C.D. Brooks. And what a preacher he is. And uh, he and I have shared some correspondence that I much treasure. And it is said that on one occasion, he rose to speak when Mickey's big hand was about where it is now. Uh, And he said, does the Holy Spirit leave this building at noon? (laughs) I'm going to be as efficient as I can because I know we're all getting hungry. And I so much appreciate everything we've enjoyed in the service this morning to date. So I want you to be aware that I'm conscious of the time. I'm going to be just as efficient as I can. You know, you don't need to be an Adventist anymore to, uh, to sense that something's coming. Very obviously coming. Uh, even newscasters are starting to get it. And I can say that because before I became a lawyer, I was a newscaster. Even they are starting to get the picture. Looming out of the fog of the future, uh, something very, very challenging is starting to emerge. Uh, It's, in many respects, ugly, a piece of which we have seen in Paris and in San Bernardino uh, and in the suffering villages of Africa and the Middle East, where it happens every day. Truth to tell, I think it's beginning to emerge as the same thing John the Revelator saw arising out of the sea as he began Revelation 13. It has seven heads, ten horns, and an agenda. Many people sense something's out there. Few people really understand it, and ladies and gentlemen, that's why we're here this morning. This world deserves to hear the Advent message. So this morning, or I should say this afternoon, uh, I want to cover three points as quickly as I can. First of all, let's talk a little bit about world events and set the stage as to where we are geopolitically. Next, I want to talk about the Advent message and what it is we have to say. We have a special message for a world that will wind up looking like the world described in Revelation 13. And finally, there's a point that concerns me, and I'd like to raise it. If, as I believe, this is a moment of great opportunity for the Advent message, then we can expect a satanic counterattack. We can expect it to happen. We better be prepared to meet it. All right, fair enough. Three points we want to cover. Number one, world events. Seems like a lifetime ago now, an era so unlike today that it almost seems like it happened on another planet. America was celebrating victory in the Cold War. Remember those days? The Berlin Wall was gone. Today you go to Berlin, you can hardly find the thing. You've got to go to a special uh, tourist spot to even see a piece of the Berlin Wall. And across the ruins of what had been the Soviet Union, people came by the thousands to hear evangelists from the West, from America. It was a gorgeous moment. It was almost like a bubble in sunlight, as pretty as a bubble. But like all bubbles, it shared a common weakness. Bubbles can burst. And this one did. In those magic hours, I used to warn audiences, don't get comfortable. 
because it isn't going to last. Sooner than you dream, you may find yourselves longing for the predictability of your old Soviet enemy. See, for the committed Marxist, there's no such thing as the resurrection. Uh, this life is all you have. I well remember when I was speaking down in Kaluga, it's a city south of Moscow, at a youth congress there held in an old young Communist League auditorium with pictures of Lenin still emblazed on the wall. The young people there kind of wanted to have a special get-together, so in the hotel they reserved a little meeting room, and I joined them there, and they invited three ladies who in the Russian tradition sit on each floor of a hotel near the elevator, and they record when you come and when you go. Kind of a holdover from the old Soviet days. It's called a dejournia. It's, it's, a, it's typically a Russian grandmother who will sit there and record who comes and goes. Well, these three ladies joined us. They stayed there happily until the students, the young people, wanted to start the meeting with prayer. And when they did, those three ladies exploded and left as if their chairs were wired to electricity. They had been brought up in the Marxist tradition. They did not handle prayer, and they fled the room. For the committed Marxist, there is no such thing as the resurrection. So this life being all you have, if you rattle sabers and holler threats, you're always facing the element of fear. You're always ready to back down. And I remember watching it happen as a young newscaster. There was this tough old street brawler by the name of Nikita Khrushchev. And he tried moving Soviet nuclear missiles into Cuba. But even Khrushchev could sense in the Cuban Missile Crisis, there is a point where rational minds just will not go. You don't go there. But today, as I warned audiences back in the 90s, we face a far different challenge. This one doesn't fear death. He welcomes it and fantasizes that heaven awaits those who die while killing others. So across large portions of Africa and the Middle East, one example being Sinjar City up there on Highway 47 in Iraq, people once again are hearing the old battle cry out of the 7th century, convert or die. Now that is beginning to assault the heart of Western Europe and innocent Christmas celebrations in nearby San Bernardino. And look at the aftermath. Look what's happened since. In both France and Belgium, for, thank God, limited periods, martial law was declared in certain areas. Now, what is martial law like? I suspect many people here, perhaps most of us, don't really know what it's like when martial law is declared, so let me tell you what it's like. When that happens, the military and the police have absolute authority. They may enter homes, they may seize weapons, they may impose arrest, they may close public places, including even markets, which means that within a matter of days, in our highly dependent lifestyle, where the pantry for most homes is the shelf in the nearby supermarket, we could become dependent on the government for the basic necessities of life. See, terrorism traps people between ugly threats, an ugly threat from the outside, which threatens our peace and safety, and on the other side, frightened governments that feel it necessary to impose martial law. It's happened, 
in Paris and Brussels. Could it happen here? Well, pray God it doesn't. But ladies and gentlemen, when I was still on active military reserve status, I was issued a card that allowed me to transit between military zones in a United States facing a major crisis. The plan was we divide the country up into military zones. Without that card I was carrying, you didn't cross over. You didn't pass through military checkpoints unless you had an awfully good reason. These things are thought about in advance. They can happen. One of the first things that frightened people do is what? They throw away liberty. Liberty becomes a luxury that for the moment people think, well, we can live without that. The important thing is to go on living. I'll give you an example. During World War II, what happened? The Japanese Americans, none of whom were ever shown to have any disloyalty whatever to this nation, were ordered into relocation camps. 120,000 loyal Japanese Americans were ordered into constant, well, I'll call them relocation camps from an executive order issued from the White House, Executive Order 9066. I'm a little bit worried about executive orders instead of the checks and balances in a representative constitutional government. One person in an executive order decides what's good for America, and unless I'm historically mistaken, and I did take a history major, we fought the Revolutionary War because we didn't want a king. Now, it didn't happen just in World War II. It happened during the Civil War. Here's Abe Lincoln facing a terrible crisis, the survival of this nation. And in the midst of that thing, Abe Lincoln suspends the writ of habeas corpus. Let me explain what that is. It is the most powerful writ in Anglo-Saxon law. It enables a single federal judge to put his or her hand up and say to the government of the United States, no, you don't. You're not taking that person and holding them unless you show me in open court what the reasons are, and they better be pretty good. A single judicial officer can stop something imposed on an individual by the government of the United States. Well, in the Civil War, there were people living in Maryland and other places who were pretty well uh, established to be Southern sympathizers. And finally, Lincoln had enough of it. He says, go get them, lock them up. So the army started knocking on doors at 1 and 2 in the morning, carrying people off. One of them, a guy by the name of John Merriman, knew enough about uh, law to sue out a writ of habeas corpus. The thing was issued by Chief Justice Taney of the United States Supreme Court, which basically said to the military commander up at Fort McHenry, turn that man loose or show me why you have the right to hold him. A judicial officer's uh, marshal goes out, tries to serve that on the soldiers at Fort McHenry. They say, well, you've got a six-gun on your hip. We've got a 20-pound cannon looking up your throat. How's this going to end? Lincoln said, the Supreme Court made its ruling. Let them try to enforce it and habeas corpus was abandoned for the remainder of the Civil War. When governments face crises like this, they face cruel challenges, difficult dilemmas. Now let me carry it through to what I think prophecy says the world will face toward the end of time. Get people good and scared, and liberty goes overboard like Jonah. 
What about an end-time world facing existential threats when the agony now faced in Africa and the Middle East and in some major cities is no longer comfortably distant or comfortably episodic. It is beginning to happen so frequently the world feels threatened. A time when we can no longer retreat to the dream world of amusement parks and widescreen TV. When the whole world faces anarchy. We talked about that last night. May I suggest the Bible predicts that in that troubled time, people will revert to a primitive herding instinct. They will clump together and there will be a brief catastrophic experiment in globalism. Okay, now it's time to open the word. Turn, if you will, to Revelation 17. Now, while you're turning there, let's set the the background for what we're going to be talking about. You'll recall in Revelation 13, John had seen a seven-headed, ten-horned beast come up out of the ocean. Okay, we're clear on that. We remember that. We're serious Bible students here. We'll remember that Revelation 13 opens with this word picture of this strange multi-headed beast coming out of the ocean. Now we're all clear this is deep Bible symbolism. You're not going to get revelation unless you understand Bible symbolism. And this beast, like all the other beasts in the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, represents something. It represents a geopolitical power. Back in the time of Daniel, Gabriel himself explained to Daniel what some of these beasts represented, and he named off the empires, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then a great power not yet in existence, which would become Rome. Well, in Revelation, this thing emerges out of the ocean, which means that this geopolitical power is coming from where? From the world's population, right? We together on this? Because in the Bible, water is used as a symbol of what? Of people. Revelation 17, 15, John's angelic messenger says the waters you saw represent people and nations. Now, it's a brilliant symbol. Always amazes me how clear the Bible symbolism is. Water is a perfect illustration of people, isn't it? Water can be very beautiful if it's just a drop of water reflecting sunlight or a mirror lake reflecting mountains. But you let water get blown on by wind which in the Bible represents strife, and water can get real ugly. I know that personally. While on active duty, I went through two uh, hurricanes or typhoons, one in the Formosa Strait, one off the west coast of Mexico in the Gulf of Tehuantepec. When you're on a warship looking up at waves, water gets ugly. So in Bible symbolism, this beast representing a geopolitical power emerges from the world's population. And now we're ready for Revelation 17. Take a look at verse 12, would you? And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. Well, let's stop there and start unpacking the symbolism. A king is head of what? A nation. So we could say the ten horns which you saw represent ten nations which have received no kingdom as yet 
In other words, they're not for John's time. They're downstream in time. They don't exist yet. Then it goes on to say they will receive power as kings one hour with the beast. And the Greek word there for hour is ora. Ora. It's very similar to the Spanish word ora. It means a brief, indeterminate period of time. Doesn't last long. Thank God the time of trouble doesn't last long. We sometimes maybe think about the time of trouble and worry about it. It won't last any longer than it takes for heaven to perfect the finality of our character where we're really ready to turn loose of this world and get out of this place and go straight up. So, what happens here in Revelation 17, 12 is the ten horns, which you saw in that beast, represent ten nations. They're not for your time, John. They're downstream in time and they won't last long. Now let's take this thing a little further. Why ten of them? What does the ten represent? Well, let me give you my conclusion. Let me give you some Bible uh, illustrations to explain why I've reached that conclusion. I believe that in Bible symbolism, ten is a, is a neat way of saying everything everywhere. Global totality. Now let me illustrate why I've come to that conclusion. When the Lord wanted to speak morality to an entire planet, how many rules did he give us? Ten of them, ten commandments. When Jesus, in a parable, wanted to describe an end-time world church, he used young women as an example of that church, and how many young women did he pick? Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten. When heaven wanted to enlighten a pagan king with a view of world history from his era all the way down through the coming of Jesus, and show Nebuchadnezzar that layered statue of various metals, head and chest and belly and legs, all the way down to the end of time with various layered metals. When you get to the end of time and the coming of Jesus ends all of human history, how many toes are there on the feet of that image? Ten, all the nations of the world. My conclusion is when the Bible uses 10, it really means everything globally, global totality. Now, with that supposition, let's watch the globalism develop. The 10 horns, the 10 nations you saw are not for your time, John. They'll receive power as, as kings one hour with the beast. All the nations of the world do something. Now we're ready to move on to verse 13. Watch the globalism development. Verse 13, these have one mind. They all agree. All nations on earth for a brief and determinate period of time have one mind. Verse 13, these have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Only problem is this globalism foreseen in Revelation 17 is on the wrong side of the cosmic war because look at verse 14, these shall make war with the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Well, that's our Lord. No other word for it, globalism, and they're on the wrong side of the cosmic war, and the result is a world which for a brief period of time in which the nonconformist faces an economic embargo. What does Revelation say? And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark, and that none might 
buy or sell, save he that had the mark, the name, or the number. A world in which the nonconformist faces an economic embargo. Now, may I suggest that warning the world about that end-time mistake is one of the major reasons we're here. We're here to remind the world, don't throw away liberty. When you think about it, already liberty is under assault in Africa, in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia, to some extent, even in America. And one of the last end-time messages we're commissioned to deliver is a warning about that global mistake. Might I suggest, never has the Advent message been more relevant. Might I also suggest that people everywhere deep down sense something's about to happen. A majority of people think America's on the wrong track now. A lot of people think some terrible danger awaits out there in the shadows of the future, and I suggest the way you make sense out of the madness of today's headlines is through the lens of the Advent message. Then it all comes together. It all makes sense. You're no longer looking at discoherent crises in the world. You're looking at signposts telling you how many miles it is till you get home. And I also am beginning to think that people are ready to listen. In the beauty shop where Joellen goes every week, one of the favorite topics there is Bible prophecy, and she's quick to share what she understands, and the ladies are quick to listen. And one of the things they often say is, if you want to know about the Bible, ask Joellen. Recently, a lady came to her. She said, you're an Adventist, aren't you? And, she, and Joellen responded, yes. And the lady said, well, tell me something. Where can I find veggie burger? <laughs> As a young woman, she had lived with an Adventist family, learned to like veggie burger, and now she can't find it. And it's kind of sad you can't find it as easily as you used to. I'm personally convicted that one of the greatest signs of the end is the fact we can't get Natina anymore. <laughs> Same thing with clients of our office. Uh, we're representing a doctor. Uh, he and his wife are wonderful people, wonderful Christian people. They're devout Roman Catholics. I happen to love Catholic people. His brother is a priest, and they're now keeping the Sabbath. I think we're at a golden moment. I think the world is ready for the message we're commissioned to deliver. It's never been this late before, and the world is beginning to sense it. Might I suggest that if you really want to get prepared to, to witness to an end-time world, really understand the books of Daniel and Revelation. Really important. That is the prophetic bedrock on which some of our unique Adventist understandings are built. And I don't mean by that to supplant the gospel. That's the foundation of our message. Revelation 14.6 starts a series of messages that God's end-time people are commissioned to deliver. But it begins with what? Then I saw an ever, you know, uh, angel flying in the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, first thing he talks about is the gospel. Then he moves on to a judgment hour message and a Sabbath message and an end time warning about the loss of religious liberty. By the time you get to verse 12, you have people who are keeping the commandments. 
and having the faith of Jesus. So let's never forget that our whole message starts on the foundation stone of the gospel, but we need to understand prophetically the books of Daniel and Revelation. Think about this. The disciples want late one afternoon, they're looking off the slopes of the Mount of Olives into that fiery orange of the setting sun. It's just hours now before that terrible midnight trial and the crucifixion. And the disciples say, Lord, what will be the signs of your coming in the end of the world? And one of the things Jesus does in Matthew 24, 15 is tell them, read the book of Daniel and understand it. Enough to just read it, read it and understand. Jesus says, he who heareth, let him understand. It's also very clear that Jesus understood the 2300-year prophecy on which our end-time judgment message is based. Jesus understood that 2300-year prophecy which by the time 1844 rolled around had already batted a thousand. It had predicted to the very year when Jesus would begin his earthly ministry, predicted to the very year the time of his crucifixion and predicted to the very year when the first Christian martyr would die. Then it arcs across 2,300 years of time and buries its distal end in a great cosmic event that takes place in heaven in preparation for the coming of Christ. It's clear to me Jesus understood and believed the 2300-year prophecy because in Mark 1.15, when he comes to John at the Jordan River and wants to be baptized, he approaches John and he says, and I quote, the time is fulfilled. What time could he be referring to? It's the first signpost on that great 2300-year prophecy. If we want to share our faith, we need to understand Daniel and Revelation. It's never been this late before. The world is beginning to sense it, and we have something to share. Which brings me now, in closing, to point number three. If, as I believe, we're at a moment of great opportunity for witnessing, then we can expect a satanic counterattack. It's always been that way. Whenever the work of God reaches a point of opportunity, Lucifer sticks something in the way. An enraged Lucifer will make war on those who keep the commandments of God and have something. Let's talk about that. Revelation 12, 17 describes an end-time Lucifer. He's not just angry, he's furious. He's enraged. This is focused anger at a specific group of people who have two unique characteristics. Number one, they keep the commandments, and I say all of them, not just 90%. In war, there are two objectives. One of them strategic. That's the reason for fighting the war. For example, freeing Europe in World War II or freeing human beings in the Civil War. That's the strategic reason for fighting the war. Now, in the cosmic war, the great controversy, what is the strategic issue? What's this war being fought over? I'm hearing words that I think are characterizing that very nicely. I would say it's being fought over God's authority. 
who's in charge of this glittering universe. You think about it, there's this bright shining being by the name of Lucifer. One awful, awful day, he looks up at that towering blue and gold throne that Ezekiel saw in vision. He said, it's like the gemstone sapphire. Well, what does sapphire look like? It's a gorgeous royal blue, and shooting through that, that blue uh, gemstone are veins of pyrite that have a golden look to them. So it's blue and gold. Uh, sapphire is an interesting mineral. You can put it in a crucible. You can heat it in the laboratory till it incandesces and gives off light, and it never loses its royal blue color. So here's Lucifer looking up at that gorgeous blue and gold throne, just aflame with energy, atop which is shattering light. That's his majesty. And Lucifer, something clicks in his mind. It goes bad, and he says, I want to be up there. And he sets off on this great experiment in rebellion. The issue is he wanted God's authority. Now, what's God's authority? That's his law, isn't it? I'm inclined to the theory that God's law is much, much bigger than just the Ten Commandments. I think God's law is that cosmic order that holds this whole universe together, that holds the nucleus of the atom together. Scientists still can't tell us what holds those protons, neutrons, mesons, positrons, all that stuff in the nucleus of the atom. What keeps it from just flying apart? They can't explain it. Colossians 1.17 does. says, in, in him all things consist. They all hold together. Now then, I think there is a great cosmic law, much, much wider than just the Ten Commandments. I'm a pilot. I've had a commercial license for over 30 years. Every time I advance power and pull back on the control yoke and watch the world drop away and realize I'm doing something that theoretically isn't possible to do, I'm defying gravity, I think to myself, I could not be doing this except those molecules of air coming across the camber of the wing are behaving in absolute obedience to law. Okay? Every time I do it, they act the same way. Now, it's possible to try to break the law. Pull back on that yoke just a little too hard, get the wing angle of attack a little too high, and the wing doesn't like it, it begins to warn you. It says that you're trying to make me break the law, and I'm not going to do it. And the way it warns you is it starts shaking the airplane. Then you know you better back off. If you don't, if you pull too hard at a point where the law is just exceeded, the wing says, that's it. I gave you a warning. Now I'm out of here. I'm not going to fly anymore. The nose of the airplane falls. And if you do that too near the ground, that's what pilots call a career-limiting excursion. I'm inclined to think that everything in the universe is obviously obedient to law. I got a question for the atheist. Everybody agrees there are laws of nature. Well, my question for the atheist is who wrote them? By the way, Big Bang theoretician, where did the stuff come from that went bang? Now, I think a little segment of God's great universal law that keeps this universe in, under control are ten rules of life for responsible living beings, including his law, <laughs> including his choice, might I say, of how and when he wants to be worshipped. 
Now, I don't know that I said it again the second service, so let me say it now. Happy Sabbath. <laughs> Feliz Sabado. And as I sometimes say with my Jewish clients, Shabbat Shalom. Sabbath peace to you. At the foot of Sinai, God speaks to several million awestruck people, and he says, remember the Sabbath day. Yeah, remember it. It's been around 2,600 years already because it started in a place called Eden. And one of the end-time calls for worship, recognized in Revelation 14, 6 through 7, is this call almost verbatim from the fourth commandment that reminds people of the need to worship a creator. So, at the end of time, there are people who keep the commandments, all 10 of them, not just 90%, and Lucifer is enraged. But there's another aspect to the war, and that's the tactical objective. In war, you have the strategic objective. That's why you're fighting. You want to free Europe. But along the road to, ta to a strategic victory, there are tactical objectives and those are the ways in which you fight the war on the way to victory. And one example is when we go into an enemy area, the first things we look for are radar stations and radio stations. We're trying to put the enemy's eyes out so he can't see us coming and he can't talk to himself. That's the tactical objective. Now there's another aspect to the cosmic war recognized in Revelation 12:17. Lucifer is enraged at people who do something, that's keep the commandments of God, and also those who have something, which is called the testimony of Jesus. And Revelation 19.10 defines that as the spirit of prophecy. Now, we as Adventists have taken that definition and applied it to a unique end time, a gift of prophecy, which I totally believe in. I am totally convinced that heaven will not leave an end-time people without a prophetic gift where it can help them get through the challenges of the end of time. But let's widen the definition a little bit. The spirit of prophecy is not just books written in our time. That's a term that can be applied to the entire word of God. Correct? Because holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. My point is this, at the end of time, God's true people will believe the word. That's also the spirit of prophecy. Are you following me? They will believe the word enough to live the word. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. So from that, I conclude God's word is the object of satanic attack at the end of time. Now, how might Lucifer attack the word of God among people whose very survival consists in believing it? Tough assignment, is it not? How do you get people to doubt the very thing that promises them survival? Well, let me suggest he'd use a ploy that he first used with success in Eden. Goes to that beautiful young woman, fresh from the hands of God, her mind is several standard deviations in excess of anything anybody in this world has today. Straight from the hand of the creator, it is her genes from whom Einstein comes. Her mind is enormous, and yet Lucifer dreams up an argument that reaches that great, freshly created mind. And his argument is this. 
you have within yourself, within that great mind of yours, access to truth. Do what I'm suggesting, and you can elevate to the point where you're like God. You can know everything. And to a mind on the, on the size and magnitude of Eve's, don't you suppose that would be appealing? And take this great mind of mine and expand it and get enlightenment. And Eve buys into that argument, and the rest is history. Now, could that argument be used with success even in end-time Christianity. You have within yourself truth. All you got to do is go into yourself and go looking for it. That's the argument. Well, could it happen? Ladies and gentlemen, it has already begun. Now, I apologize in advance if what I am going to say in the next five minutes or so is offensive to anybody. I don't mean to be, but there are points at which we have to speak truth. And I have an advantage. You know, I can get in my car and leave. <laughs> so let me just give you my honest concerns. Think about them. I'm not meaning to inflict them on you. But I am very concerned that Lucifer's Eden approach that trapped the mind of that great mind of Eve is already trying to happen within Christianity. And let me start with something that was said at the general conference session in 2010 by a man whom I much admire and for whom I thank the Lord, Elder Ted Wilson. He said in warning to his church, stay away from non-biblical methods of spiritual formation that are rooted in mysticism, such as contemplative prayer and the emerging church movement in which they are promoted. End of quote. Now at this point we might say, well, what on earth was Elder getting at? What's he talking about? Well, let me just illuminate on that a little bit. So-called contemplative prayer is based on emptying the mind so that you can visualize God and imagine him talking to you. Like Eastern religions, those who practice this get to that state of emptiness by repeating a single word over and over again until the mind just finally gives up. says, well, I'm tired of hearing that. You just do what you want. I'm out of here. One writer put it this way, the quiet repetition of a single word can help us descend. Keep that word in mind. Descend with the mind into the heart. This simple way of prayer opens us to God's active presence. Well, now, when you descend, where are you going? God ain't down there. He's up there. When you descend, you're going into self. When you descend, you're headed for a place that Lucifer can bite you. In contemplative prayer, one descends into self looking for God. Do you see the overtones of Eden? Then you imagine that you're getting messages back from some internal source that actually supersedes Scripture. Let me give you an example. One writer put it this way, the ultimate authority of my life is not the Bible, not something written by man and frozen in time. My ultimate authority is the divine voice in my own soul, period. 
end of quote. Are you comfortable trusting your own soul and assuming the divine voice is in there? In our Sabbath school lesson this morning, we heard the Apostle Peter, when he really saw himself in part, say, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. You don't go there looking for the voice of God. After practicing this sort of quote-unquote worship, one excited woman put it this way, I found God in myself and I loved her. I loved her fiercely, (laughs) end of quote. See, empty the mind, and there's no telling what you'll see or hear or believe. Now let me cut to the bottom line. May I respectfully suggest we are too late in this earth's history to afford fads like that. It's never been this late before. It's time to get back into the word. So let's, let's summarize. We talked about three points, the first of which is the world around us. Just a couple of examples. World events themselves are, I think, proclaiming in trumpet tones, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. And the world's beginning to hear it. Next, I I wanted to recognize we're a time of unique opportunity. Never has the Advent message been more relevant, and honest minds everywhere are beginning to recognize that. And then point number three, finally, we saw that an angry enemy will counterattack by attacking the messengers. Think about this. When others with angry internet blogs or glitzy... uh, dissident magazines try to invade your home and your mind. Remember what happened to the rebuilders of Jerusalem. They had a tool in one hand and they had the sword in the other. And their response to those who wanted to intrude into the rebuilding of Jerusalem is, we've got a mighty work to do, we don't have time to argue with you. Now today, what is the sword we have in the other hand? It's the word of God. Stay in there and go looking for truth out in the word of God. Let's don't waste time looking for truth in our own internal selves that so often disappoint even us. Let them blog. If there are bloggers out there, let them blog. Let's study the word of God. And once in a while, an angry Lucifer will attack us spiritually. We'll make mistakes. We'll do or say things or think things we wish we hadn't done At that point, what do we do? We counterattack with two mighty principles, repentance and reformation. Lucifer is powerless before the mighty power of divine forgiveness. Don't give up. I think of Commodore Perry in the War of 1812. He had this little very, very young, very ill-equipped American Navy, and a British battleship came along and just fired a broadside, and stuff started falling off Commodore Perry's ship. The British captain picked up his speaking trumpet and said, Sir, do you strike your flag? Commodore Perry picked up his and said, Sir, I have just begun to fight. When it was over, the British ship struck its flag and we won that war on those lakes up in New England. So when the devil sometimes (laughs) causes us to say or do something that surprises even us, counterattack. 
and give the devil back Commodore Perry's response, I have just begun to fight. And he who hath begun a good work in me will see me through to the end. Lucifer is powerless before the mighty power of divine forgiveness. Let's close. Wonderful words from a book called Steps to Christ. I feel I must say we are homeward bound. A little longer and we shall see the king. We cannot but look forward to new perplexities, but we can say, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Then let us take up our work just where we find it, believing that whatever may come, strength proportionate to the trial will be given, and by and by the gates of heaven will be thrown open, and we will hear from the king those words. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you.